And so, Lord, please open up our hearts to receive your word. We want to uh, glean from you tonight. So teach us all, speak to us, and, and have your way with us. Amen. All right, so uh, in overview fashion, we're hitting the book of Acts tonight. We are uh, we're coming into, at this point, we've covered the mass of the New Testament, just in terms of volume. Uh, there's still a lot lot to unpack, a lot of meat left, and so I'm, I'm, I'm really stoked for just the next couple months on Wednesdays, uh, getting to dive into so much of just the super practical, straightforward application of what does it look like to live a Christian life. But uh, tonight we're in the book of Acts. Acts is, uh, it's written by Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke. Uh, some people also think he wrote the book of Hebrews, but we'll discuss that when we get to the book of Hebrews. Um, but really, Acts could be referred to as Second Luke, in a sense. It could be referred to as, you know, Luke Part Two, because Luke, in chapter one of his book, says, basically, he's writing to this man named Theophilus, and he says, Theophilus, I wanted to put together a historical account for you. So here's a summary of what's happened. I researched it, I wrote it down in consecutive order. Here you go. And in Acts chapter one, he says, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And then he launches into this second account, which is, here's what happened after all of that. Here's what happened after the resurrection. And so basically, he's bringing Theophilus up to speed. And so, uh, so the book of Acts is the question, well, what happens after the resurrection? Like, what do you, what do, you do with it, right? Uh, when, when you are given a fact or you're given a, a truth or a reality, there's necessarily... A response to it. You have to do something about it. And, and I think sometimes we don't appreciate this, but, you know, if I say someone's coming to, whatever, to kill the president, uh, well, you either believe it or you don't believe it. If you do nothing, that's still doing something. That's, that's by your action displaying disbelief. And so you are doing something with it. Every action forces a response. And so what we have is, okay, so Jesus came to earth. He, he died. He rose from the dead. So what? Now what? What are we going to do about that? And Acts is really uh, the summary of what the church did about that. And so with that, the book of Acts has an immense amount of application for us as far as what do we do with that? What do we do about that? How do we respond to that? And so, um, so if you're looking at the book of Acts and you're trying to say, well, what's the, like, what's the outline of the book? Well, evidently the Lord thought we all needed an outline, so he gave us one. In chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus is speaking, and he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So, God gives the outline for the book. This is exactly what's going to happen with the book. They're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And then the rest of the book will, in order, cover what they do in Jerusalem, in Judea. So, Jerusalem's the capital city of the nation of Israel. Judea is basically the region of Israel. Samaria is the northern, the part of the world that's directly above Judea, and it was sort of the natural extension of where they would wind up going, and then from there to the ends of the earth. And the book of Acts is going to carry that outline. So if we're looking for what's the outline of the book of Acts, Acts 1.8 is the outline. And uh, so basically chapters 1 through 7, we're going to get to see 
them going from Jerusalem into Judea. And so we're going to knock out the first two portions in the first seven chapters. So he said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so the first seven chapters of the book of Acts are Jerusalem and Judea. And the, really the, the pivotal moment in the book of Acts comes in chapter 2. In chapter 2, we're going to jump a couple verses here because um, it's, it's a fairly lengthy chapter and we can't get through it all uh, in, its, in its full depth, but we're going to hit some highlights here. So chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So what just happens there? Well, so they're all together, they being the believers in Jesus, who have, Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem till the Holy Spirit comes. And they're like, okay, no idea what that really is going to look like, but we'll wait around and we'll assume that when it happens, we'll know it happens. And so it says they're all together. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. It filled the whole house. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak with one another in tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. And this is a specific occurrence of what's called the gift of tongues, which is when by the power of the Holy Spirit, someone is able to praise the Lord in a language that they don't know. And, uh, and it's the gift of the Holy Spirit that the Lord gives at certain times to give people an experience with him so they can appreciate like I'm praising the Lord and the Lord is so good that the Lord is helping me actually praise him more fully because I can't do it well enough in English so he decided to help me do it in a language that I don't even know and it's a miraculous occurring uh, occurrence that happens by the power of the Holy Spirit and that's when, it's, when it says specifically it's connected to they were all filled with the Holy Spirit now we're gonna you know the whole book if we go back to the outline Jesus said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. He didn't say, now that you believe in me, you have a responsibility to make it happen, and you have a responsibility to get out there, and you had better shake up the whole world with the gospel. He says, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you're going to be my witnesses. What's a witness? A witness is not the person who makes, a witness is not the judge. The witness does not, you know, make the final call. The witness just says, hey, I was here. Here's what happened. And, and people are then convinced by the testimony of the witness. The witness is just expressing what has already happened. So really the whole linchpin of verse 8 is the first part. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, in the New Testament, we're given a couple different expressions, a couple different prepositions that describe how the Holy Spirit interacts with people on earth. Um, we're told that the Holy Spirit specifically is with us, he is in us, and he's upon us. And those are three different prepositions, they're three different Greek words, so it's not just English translators getting creative. Um, they're actually three distinct expressions of the way the Holy Spirit interacts with the world. So the Holy Spirit is with us. And that would be, Jesus said in John, that the Holy Spirit will come and convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So the Holy Spirit is what people oftentimes like to call their conscience. When you do something and you have that nudge of, this is wrong. Or maybe you're talking to somebody and there's that nudge of, 
I really don't know what they're saying that is wrong. I couldn't put my finger on it, but there's something messed up in what they're saying. Or sometimes, frankly, it's those moments um, where people say, you know, it was just, it felt kind of weird. It was almost supernatural-ish. Sometimes that's the Holy Spirit. You know, people have... uh, situations where they maybe almost died and had, you know, they were saved or rescued and they can't quite explain it. It doesn't make really great sense. That's the Holy Spirit being with, okay? That's sort of an alongside and with, in, in that situation, what the Holy Spirit is doing is he's pushing people toward a relationship with Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is here to testify of Jesus Christ. So he's pushing the world and convicting the world and pointing the world toward Jesus Christ. So that's the Holy Spirit being with, And then the Holy Spirit comes in. And when the Holy Spirit comes in us, that is specifically the moment of salvation. That's when we say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need to be forgiven of my sins. I need to be transformed. And the Holy Spirit washes us by the blood of Jesus Christ so that we can stand before the presence of God. The Holy Spirit does the cleansing work. Jesus paid the price and the Holy Spirit then applies that to our to our debt and our sin, and we're washed clean and we're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. At that point, the Holy Spirit is in us. We're saved. We're set apart. We're, we're being made holy by the Lord. And at that point, we're clean. We're clean in the eyes of the Lord, right? It's not like we're in this back and forth. The Lord looks at us and says, you're holy. You're part of the family of God. You're, you have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. All right? But then there's a third preposition, and that one is upon. Sometimes it can translate over. So in a sense, you could call it the overflowing, and that would be a very legitimate translation. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon someone, it's a different experience than salvation. Now, sometimes they happen at the exact same time, but what hap- when the Holy Spirit comes upon a person, there's a different level of uh, the person is now not just cleansed in the eyes of God, they are now empowered by God. And there's a difference. There's a difference between, okay, I'm clean, right? I'm no, there's, there's, I'm no longer going to hell. And then there's, I am filled up with a supernatural power that is much bigger and much uh, more aware, much more powerful, and much holier than I am. And that's the Holy Spirit coming upon, okay? And, and, we can, and we're not just making this up. In, in John chapter 20, verse 22, Jesus is talking to his disciples and it says he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So these guys had received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was in them. At this point in time, the disciples have seen Jesus risen from the dead. They believe in him as God. They are completely saved. They are going to heaven when they die. And Jesus has already told them, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he tells them, wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So they're they're two different things. And sometimes in the life of a believer, they happen at the exact same time, okay? Sometimes you get saved and you get filled at the exact same time. Sometimes they're separated a little bit. And for the 12 disciples here, they were separated by, uh, well, from the resurrection to the day of Pentecost was about 50 days. And so these guys are all in a room together and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. All right, and so we're going to watch now for the rest of the book of Acts what happens when the Holy Spirit is upon people. And it's a lot different than when the Holy Spirit's just in people. So they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're speaking with the gift of tongues, which is praising the Lord in a language that's not their own. And then verse 14, well, so then kind of verse 5 through 13, they then 
it spills out into the streets. They're praising the Lord in, in the streets. And people are there from all over the world um, because Pentecost was a Jewish holiday. And so there's people who've come from all over to celebrate. And they're looking around saying, what is going on? In verse 14, but Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. Because some of the people were speculating, maybe these guys are drunk. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. Quote, and it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Peter stands up in a crowd of Jewish, believers, of Jewish people and says, here's what's going on. We are witnessing the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures because Joel prophesied that in the last days, the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all mankind. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would occasionally come down, but it was much more uh, spaced out. There were specific moments where we could say the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson or the Spirit of the Lord came upon David or came upon whoever. And, and Peter's saying, you got to understand, this is different. The, whole, the, the fullness of the Holy Spirit being upon you is no longer limited to are you a specific prophet of God. This is now an available gift to all mankind. And we are living in a fulfillment of prophecy. Now, incidentally, what that also means is we're living in the last days. Because Joel said, in the last days, God will pour out His Spirit on all mankind. So, if you ever meet somebody who's a little into prophecy and they keep talking about the last days and you're thinking... Would you just lay off? Understand, we have been in the last days for 2,000 years, right? We're in the laster days now, just mathematically. We're, we're 2,000 years farther along than we were at the day of Pentecost. But we've been in the last days for 2,000 years now. And so Peter stands up, he gives this prophecy, he launches into an entire sermon about how Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the way of salvation. And verse 37 says, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Now, bear in mind, okay, you know, especially if you've grown up in the church, we can read this and just say, yeah, okay, that's great. Bear in mind who's talking. This is Peter. This is Peter, okay? Less than two months ago in Peter's life, he sat around a campfire with a couple of Roman guards, and a couple of Jewish guards, and a couple servants, and one of them said, did I ever see you with Jesus? And he said, no, 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 not me. Proceeded to then swear and curse the name of God in, in his attempt to separate himself from Jesus because he was so scared. This is the same guy who, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that Jesus was arrested, Peter's got this plan, you know what, Jesus, God needs help being saved. I'm going to save him. He whips out a sword and cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. And you know, it's been said, why do you cut off somebody's ear? Because you missed. 
right? Because you're going for the head and you miss. So Peter has got this whole plan. He's got this agenda. He's got this drive. He's got this passion, but he just, he can't do it. He can't cut it, right? Peter, he does his best and what happens? He just falls miserably short. And, what ha- and the Lord restores Peter from that point and then says, all right, now wait till the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So the same guy who couldn't stand up to a teenage girl and say, yes, I know I, I was around Jesus, is now standing up in the, one of the busiest places in the world and saying, everybody who's within earshot needs to listen up to what I'm saying because I'm here to tell you that Jesus Christ died and he rose again and he is offering you new life. Somebody said, Peter couldn't cut one man's head off in his own strength, but the Holy Spirit came upon him and he just cut 3,000 men to the heart. Peter has been transformed by the power of God. And, there's, and, and we look at this, and there's a teaching that goes around in the church sometimes today that says that the fullness of the Holy Spirit, like what we'll see in the book of Acts, and all the miracles, and all the signs, and people speaking in tongues, there's a teaching that says uh, that was a sort of a temporary kind of overflow to help get the church started, to really get things off the ground, to get the ball rolling. And that those gifts have now tapered off, and we don't see signs like that anymore. Well, with respect to anybody who might teach that, it's wrong. Because uh, Peter says, standing here, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a promise from God. And then he says, for this promise is... For you and your children and all who are far off. So this is for you. This is for your kids. This is for people who are all over the world who are going to hear this. And for as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. If you're sitting here tonight and you're a Christian, it's because the Lord has called you to himself. So the Lord opened your eyes. The Lord brought you to a point where you recognized your need for him. So he called you to himself. So what's that mean? That means the promise of the Holy Spirit is for you. And you have the opportunity for the Holy Spirit to not just be with you and not just be in you, but to actually be upon you. You have access to the same power in the same quantity that transformed Peter into who he became. And we're going to watch through the rest of the book of Acts. And we're going to watch the Holy Spirit continue to do the same thing. And so it, it's, a, it's a very common teaching. And frankly, there's a lot of phenomenal Bible teachers and phenomenal scholars who write wonderful books who hold to that view. But I really cannot stand up here as someone who teaches the word and tell you anything other than that is an unbiblical take. Because Peter says, this is for you and your children and for all who are far off and for as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. The promise of the Holy Spirit coming upon you is still available. It's never ended. And so they say, what do we have to do? And he says, well, repent, be baptized. And then in chapter 2, verse 42, um, We get a great verse. It says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And then down in verse 47, it says, And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, these guys didn't have Christian bookstores. They didn't have Christian books. They had no conferences. They had no seminars. They didn't have any other pastors they could call and say, Have you ever had this situation come up in your church? How did you guys handle it? These guys, all they have right now It's the power of the Holy Spirit. And they now have a church of 3,000 people that needs discipling. And so what do they do? They continued 
they devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now over time, and, and what's the result? The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. These verses really are our church's entire philosophy of ministry. You can sum up our church's whole plan, our whole agenda, our whole five-year plan, our whole ten-year plan, our whole lifetime plan is summed up in this, Acts 2.42. You know what we're going to do? We're going to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. We're going to teach the Word of God. To fellowship. We're going to interact with each other and we're going we're to bless each other and serve each other and pray for each other. And, and you know, fellowship. What's fellowship? Two fellows in the same ship, right? That's what we're going to do. Uh, the breaking of bread, we're going to eat together. There's something special that happens when you eat together with someone. There's, there's a deeper level of connection. When you connect with somebody over a meal, there is a sense of shared community that happens. And to prayer. We're going to pray as a church. We're going to get together and pray. And, you know, over 2,000 years, there have been a lot of pastors and a lot of experts and a lot of sociologists and demographic studies that would explain that what we actually need is all of this plus a giant LED screen 40 foot long and 22 foot high in Technicolor. And once you have that, it's only like $65,000 if you get a cheap one. Once you have that and a few more smoke machines and a few more colored lights and, you know, once we switch in really cool churches, the worship set opens in red lighting, but by the end, we're in blue lighting because it's, you know, if there's, there's, this, there's this heat and intensity at the beginning and that's red light and we can stimulate a whole crowd and then we want to cool things down and make it a little mellow, so we'll make it blue lighting. And we'll talk with lots of breathy tones because the Lord moves better when we put H's in front of everything. And, and that's, what the, that's what the church has fallen into. And you know what? Here's the deal. There's a lot of very smart people who go for that. But the disciples filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to devote ourselves to a couple of things. Teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. And you know what happened? The Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. That's our, that's our whole stance as a church. That's our goal. If we can continue devoting ourselves, not just like passively, you know, we're, we're taking it seriously. We're going to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Then we sincerely believe that the Lord will add to the church those who are being saved. The Lord will grow his church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He did not say, you will grow your social organization, which is usually what the church turns into when we make it uh, a circus. So you may have noticed uh, our lighting budget at this church is rather uh, sad compared to most budgets. It, it's really pathetic, actually. Uh, <clears throat> but it's really not, you know, and I get if you're, you know, some, if it's a big church and you have the money and that's your stewardship, whatever. That's, that's your business. But sometimes that can be a great addition, but that's never a replacement. And if a church is replacing these things, then the church is no longer the church. It's an organization. It's a club. It's a group. It's a hangout spot. But we're talking about Jesus saying, wait till the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you'll receive power. The church right now does not need more organization. It needs more power. And power comes when the Holy Spirit comes. So, uh... We are not going to move through the rest of the chapters as slowly as that. But Acts 2 is really where, you, if you're going to overview Acts, you have to park at Acts 2. Because we have to understand 
is such a definitive chapter for how does how did the church originate and how does our church carry on or try to carry on that legacy so we'll pick up the pace a little bit chapter three basically more of the same peter sees a lame man and by the power of the holy spirit heals the lame man this man can walk again says this man sat in the temple i think for uh 40 years see the 20 or 40 and i forget and i didn't write down the verse he sat in the temple for a long time jesus would have walked past this man and not chosen to heal him and, and you could say well why did he do that well for one reason, because Peter gets the privilege. Peter gets the privilege, you know what he does? As soon as the man gets healed, it draws a crowd. What's Peter do? Again, because he, now he's filled with the power of God. He preaches another sermon. And it says, and then the church was about 5,000 people. So Peter's first sermon, 3,000 people get saved. Peter's second sermon, an additional 2,000 get saved. And then chapter 5, and, and so what we're watching is when the Holy Spirit moves, it, things begin to happen on a level that earthly systems don't uh, don't accommodate for right there are systems that are tried and true methods to get people to come into a building you can you can win people to come to an organization you can win people to come to a church you can attract them and you can even keep them for long periods of time but you will not by your own efforts stand up and cut 3,000 men to the heart you will not heal the lame. You will not be able to praise the Lord in ways that you can't even comprehend. That will not happen by the efforts of man. And so what we're looking at is the work of God through men. And so in chapter 5, the Lord deals with sin. There's a, group, there's a husband and wife who, you know, there's a lot of cool stuff happening. There's a lot of uh, spontaneous generosity that's happening because people's hearts are being stirred to you know, seek after the Lord instead of seeking earthly possessions. And so people are bringing their money to, to bless the poor with. And this husband and wife decide, hey, let's bring some money and we'll say it was the whole amount that we sold our property for and we'll actually keep back a little bit for a nest egg. And the Holy Spirit deals with them. He, he, he kills them. And you say, wow, that's harsh. But no, really, the Holy Spirit is protecting his church. John, Jesus said in John that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. If you're in a church that's marked by the power of the Holy Spirit, then what's going to happen is sin is going to get dealt with. And if you have sin that you're refusing to deal with, you're going to, you should feel very uncomfortable because the Holy Spirit is convicting you of sin. Sin is wrong. And so if a church can't say that, then a church has lost the power of the Holy Spirit. Sin is wrong. And the Holy Spirit here, he's giving up, he gives this couple, they have opportunities to repent, they don't take it. So he deals with them. He convicts them of their sin. Chapter 6 and 7, uh, we start to see persecution rise up amongst the Christians, or toward the Christians, from the Jewish people. And specifically, we get the first martyr of the church. And it brings up an interesting point that being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit is not a call to ease. It's not a call to fun. It's a call to being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And you know, the Holy Spirit moves through our lives. He also convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. If the same power that is bringing life to your soul is convicting someone else of sin, they are going to resent you. They're going to they're gonna feel that the power that is in your soul is convicting their soul, and they will resist that. And so we see all throughout the book of Acts, all throughout church history, the church has always uh, endured persecution 
in times of in times of growth because people resist the work of the Holy Spirit. And so we get the first martyr, Stephen. Stephen was a guy who helped uh, distribute food to the poor widows, and then but he was also along the way evangelizing. And none of the Pharisees, none of the Jewish people, could refute his arguments. They could not uh, intellectually prove that Jesus hadn't risen from the dead. They couldn't prove him wrong. They couldn't defeat Christianity. And so what do they do? They lied about him. They accused him of blasphemy. They accused him of a capital offense. And they bring him before the, basically the, the Jewish court. Say, what do, you have, what do you have to say for yourselves? In chapter 7, he goes into this sermon and he says, here's the thing. The Jewish people always miss the work of God the first time. He says, when Joseph went down to Egypt, his brothers came one time and didn't recognize him. He came the second time and that's when Joseph revealed himself. Moses was going to deliver the children of Israel from Egypt. He went out the first time to try and do it. They were not ready to receive him. So he went in the wilderness for 40 years. He came back. And the second time, they were willing to receive it. And he says, basically, here's what happened, guys. Jesus came the first time, and you weren't willing to receive it. And he leaves it open-ended, but it is, in his own way, he's prophesying about the end times. The, the Great Tribulation is referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble. And it's going to be a time when, specifically, the Jewish people are going to come to an incredible awareness of who Jesus Christ is. They're going to recognize him the second time. And so Stephen, he preaches an amazing sermon, but people who don't want to listen to the truth are oftentimes capable of ignoring the truth. And so they put Stephen to death. And, and one of the, we start to shift gears here, and we reference that it references in chapter 8 that Saul, who's one of these guys who helped put him to death, was consenting to his death, and now a serious persecution arises. And incidentally, though, remember, what's the outline of the book? You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. The disciples had received that. They'd received the power of the Holy Spirit, but they hadn't really branched out. They had, they had parked a little bit in, in Jerusalem. And so the Lord allows persecution, in, uh, and in part, guess what happens? Starts going to, they start going to Samaria. We got to leave town. Well, guess what? We'll just take the gospel with us. Let's go, right? I, I can't stay here, so what's happening? The gospel moves. Persecution, for as much as it, we hate it and it makes us uncomfortable and all that, persecution spreads the gospel. Do you realize right now, Ukraine has been one of the most evangelized countries in Europe? Europe is, is horribly secular. Europe has almost no theological uh, comprehension to their culture right now. But guess what? Ukrainians are all doing what? They're all moving to Europe. Poland is having this huge influx of Christian Ukrainian refugees. And these other countries all pocketed around. I mean, we know missionaries who were in Ukraine, and now where are they? They're in Hungary, they're in Georgia, they're in, you know, they're, they're all over the map. And the gospel is going out to Europe because the Lord cares about people everywhere. And that doesn't mean that the Lord instigated the war in Ukraine, but that means that the Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can take advantage of any and every opportunity to say, well, let's spread the gospel. And so these guys start getting under persecution. They start spreading the gospel farther away. So we're going to see through the book of Acts, it just it keeps going out. So they go to Samaria, which is sort of out of the Jewish jurisdiction. And, and then Saul, uh, Saul becomes really rabid in his pursuit against Christianity. And so he's like, no, no, they cannot, they can't outrun me. They can't outrun me. They think that they've got some sort of system. They think they've got a God who can give them power. I'll show them who's strong. So Saul decides he's going to go 
and, and find whoever he can, anywhere he can, bring them back and either kill them or make them forcibly, uh, force them to abandon Christianity. And he's on his way to Damascus in chapter 9. And the Lord shines down from heaven and knocks him onto the ground. Um, a little Bible trivia fact. It never says he knocked him off his horse. We don't know if he was riding or walking. So if you're like, if you're on a TV show and it's at a million dollars, the word horse is not in chapter 9. So uh, he falls to the ground. But the Lord says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul had thought he was fighting for the Lord. And the Lord says, Saul, you've been fighting against me. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Lord opens Saul's eyes right there. Saul realizes, oh my gosh. I thought I was fighting for the Lord and I was fighting against him. And God says, yeah, it's kind of hard to kick against the goads, isn't it? You've been like, you know, you've had elbows out, you know, fist up the whole time. You've been, you've been trying to do this whole thing. It's not going so easy for you, is it, Saul? Why don't you just let me save you? Why don't you let me transform you and give you my power? You can quit doing the wrong thing in your own strength and you can start doing the right thing in my strength. And Paul says, okay, uh, yeah, sure, sure, sure. So Saul does that and he become, begins to be known as Paul. And he becomes uh, really the, the greatest evangelist in all of world history. And so Saul gets converted in chapter 10. It jumps back to Peter for a second because the narrative, remember New, Luke is catching Theophilus up to speed on what's going on in the church. And so he's bringing him up. So everyone saw he jumps around a little bit. So we went Peter and then he went Paul and now he's back to Peter and he's kind of, you know, saying, here's what's going on. Chapter 10, Peter takes the gospel to the Gentiles. And it's, again, it's one of these things that we don't necessarily appreciate because we're an American audience. We're, you know, we're Gentiles or whatever. We kind of just grew up like, yeah, sure. You know, God loves us all. But to the Jewish people, there was a serious question about, wait a second, did Jesus actually come for all people or did he come for all Jewish people? Or did he come for all people who are willing to act like Jewish people? And, and, and where's the balance? And well, you know, just to be on the safe side, maybe we'll just kind of stick with evangelizing Jewish people for now. And so the Lord uh, comes to this Roman man named Cornelius and says, send a couple guys to this guy named Peter, tell him to come back and he'll tell you what to do if you want to know me. Cornelius says, great. Peter, a couple days journey away, has this vision from God where God says, what I am making clean, you can't call it unclean. And, and he's, it's a vision kind of in context of the Old Testament food. But Peter comes out of the vision and realizes, wait a second, God's using this to teach me about the people. He's using this to teach me not about food, but about people. To teach me that, oh, I've spent my whole life as a Jewish person considering every Gentile, non-Jewish person to be unclean. And God is saying, no, no, I'm calling them clean. And so Peter goes and he delivers the gospel to the Gentiles. And, and it's, it's, so Peter, you know, Peter was not the first pope, but the Lord did tell Peter, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom. And Peter gets the privilege of being the one who takes the gospel to the Jewish people on the day of Pentecost. And he also gets to be the one who has the privilege of taking the gospel to the Gentiles for the first time. And so, no, Peter's not some infallible celibate dude who lives in Rome. But Peter does get the privilege from the Lord of carrying the gospel to the world, to the Jews and to the Gentiles. And so chapter 10 is a huge turning point for the church because all of a sudden now anyone can be transformed by the gospel. And, and the Lord knew that all along, but the church had to sort of 
reconcile with it. Which, again, is a great point that when the Holy Spirit comes upon us with that power, that doesn't make us perfect. But it does make us transformed. Okay? And so the Holy Spirit will keep working in us. He will keep working through us. He will keep convicting us of our own sin and of judgment. And He'll keep bringing His righteousness into us. But it's still going to be a transformative process until we die. We get a couple different times in here where it says, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, well, some people call it the filling of the Holy Spirit. Some people call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Don't worry about the terms. When the Holy Spirit comes upon Peter, guess what Peter needs a chapter, a chapter later? He needs the Holy Spirit to come upon him again. And he needs the Holy Spirit to come upon him again. Peter does not say, great, the Holy Spirit came in and saved me and now I'm good. Peter needs the Holy Spirit on a perennial, perpetual, constant basis. And so Peter realizes through the Holy Spirit, oh, the Gentiles get to hear this. And then he goes back in chapter 11 and the Jewish people say, wait a second, what do you mean the Gentiles get to hear this? And he says, God said, and they say, oh, that makes sense. Um, and so then really chapters, so chapters 9 through the end of the book now are going to cover the gospel going to the ends of the earth. And so uh, we got that little chunk of Peter. Now we're going to go almost totally to Paul as Luke is, is giving Theophilus the rundown. So really chapter 13 through 28 is what we're going to see Paul's ministry. Paul is going to receive a call from the Lord specifically toward the Gentile people. And then he's going to start traveling around the world spreading the gospel. And so we'll get to see him go through Acts. He's going to go to Philippi. He's going to go to Thessalonica. He's going to go to Athens. He's going to go to Berea. He's going to go to Corinth. He's going to go to Ephesus. He's going to go to all these places that were in the, in the ancient world. And everywhere he goes, what's he do? He spreads the gospel. Everywhere he goes, incidentally, you know what usually happens along with it? He spreads the gospel and he gets beat up. So what's he do? He leaves town. Goes to the next town. Spreads the gospel. Gets beat up. Leaves town. Goes to the next town. Spreads the gospel. and Gets beat up. Goes to the next town. And in some situations, in, in one specifically, he gets beat up to the point where they're convinced he's dead, so they drag him out of the city as a corpse. And his friends are there looking around saying, well, rest in peace. And he gets up, shakes himself off, and goes back into the city to teach the gospel because he evidently was in the middle of a sermon that he didn't get to finish. And so Paul, remember, Paul went from being the man who was doing the wrong thing in his own strength to by the power of God now doing the right thing in the Lord's strength. And Paul becomes this scarred up guy who carries the gospel all across the known world. And we get to see him just, you know, we get to see him deliver these huge orations to giant crowds. We get to see him interact with these individuals on a one-on-one -on -one basis. Because I think in part, the Lord wants us to understand that when the power of the Holy Spirit moves, it's not going, not it, the Holy Spirit is a person. He is not going to move in a cookie-cutter approach. We should not be able to say, well, you know, in 1972, the Holy Spirit moved this way. Therefore, in 2022, the Holy Spirit's going to move this way. No. The Holy Spirit is looking to move through individuals who are surrendered to Him. And so in 1972, the Holy Spirit was moving through individuals who surrendered to Him. And specifically, because He's God and He knows everything, He understands how to minister through them to a specific culture and a specific time and place. And if we are trying to get the Holy Spirit to do the same thing in our lives now, you know, and, and with this, and box ourselves into this, well, you know, here's how we have to reach the young or the old or the not 
quite young and they're not quite old, we're going we're gonna to wind up trying to box God into here's how God you have to work. We're talking about the Holy Spirit. God does not need us to tell him how to work. God needs us to say, Lord, how would you like to work? And so in the book of Acts, Paul has a ton of different ministry uh, approaches. He has different styles. He talks to different people different ways. We get to see different people who are sharing the gospel. And some of them, we, it tells us, like, there's a guy named Apollos. It says he was mighty in word and deed. He's an eloquent man. He's fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately. He's speaking boldly. You get this, like, intellectual powerhouse. And then we get other people who are just doing their thing, spreading the gospel. Because the Lord is interested in working with and through everybody. Why? Because the promise of the Holy Spirit, like Peter said, is to every single one of us. And so the Lord makes sure through the book of Acts, as we're getting the story of Paul's ministry and Peter's ministry and all these different characters, that we don't get to say, oh, here's exactly how the Lord gets to do it. So as long as I'm a, whatever, fisherman or a man or an educated man or an uneducated person, as long as I'm this, God can use me. No, no, no. As long as you're breathing, God can use you. Okay? So we get to watch Paul's, uh, Paul's ministries are going through. Um, and then so just kind of a couple thoughts as, as we're in conclusion. Um, so basically, Paul's going to go through ministry. He's going to wind up getting arrested by the Jewish people uh, in Jerusalem. He gets a couple sham trials, and so he has to appeal to Caesar, which kind of like in our system of justice, we can appeal to the Supreme Court if we don't feel like we got a fair trial. Same basic idea. So he winds up going to Rome, okay? But along the way, we get just a couple things as we're wrapping up for the night. In Acts 19, and this is a super important passage for us. It happened that while Apollos, that's the intellectual dude, was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. So Paul finds a church of believers and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. There were in all about 12 men. Paul's traveling on his uh, third missionary journey. He'd made a couple loops. This was the third one. And he meets this group of believers in the city of Ephesus. And he's talking to him, and something's just not quite right. And he says, I just got to ask, did you guys receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, the Holy what? He says, well, wait a second. What exactly, like, let's back up. What do you know? What do you, what, where are you guys at spiritually? They said, well, we've been baptized in John's baptism. We've been baptized by water. He says, okay, John's telling you about Jesus Christ. They're like, right. So these guys are believers. These guys are Christians. But as Paul's interacting with them, he says, you know what? You guys are, it's like you're short on power. You're, you're missing something. And Paul can say, guys, where are you at with the Holy Spirit? And they say, I don't know. I just need Jesus forgave my sins. And so what's Paul do? He says, well, let's pray for the Holy Spirit. So, you know, here's the deal. I don't know everybody's background in the room, okay? But I'm pretty sure everybody here in the room is, is a Christian. 
uh, we've, we've asked the Lord to forgive us for our sins. We've been uh, baptized. We've, the Lord is, the Holy Spirit has come in us and he's transformed us. And in the eyes of God, we're holy, we're righteous, and we're saved. We are going to heaven. But sometimes we can live life and it's like, there's just not power. You know? There's, a, there's, just, a, there's just a lack of, of something. Right? And depending on our church background, sometimes we've, we can come from churches where there's never been in this awareness. Where we've been taught that, yeah, these guys did these miracles then. The Holy Spirit moved in that way back then. That was for a specific time. Well, Peter said that it was for all who God will draw to himself. And so, you know, people can get hung up over, is it called the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Is it the, you know, the fullness of the Holy Spirit? Is it being filled with the Holy Spirit? Is it being overfilled with the Holy Spirit? Is it, you know, is it, is it well, the Holy Spirit's speaking to me or is it the Lord's leading me? We can get all hung up over these definitions. That's pointless. Here's the question. Have you received the Holy Spirit? Okay, the Holy Spirit's been with you from the day you were born. If you've received salvation, the Holy Spirit is in you. Is the Holy Spirit upon you? That's the question that Paul asked these guys here. That's the question that every single one of us needs to ask. And, and if you have had the Holy Spirit come upon you, that's great. You need it again. If you haven't had the Holy Spirit come upon you, then, then grab somebody. And let's pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray, you know, that, that word upon could in some sense translate overflowing. Let's pray for the overflowing of God's power to come into your heart, to come into your life, right? And it may be that you actually praise the Lord in tongues. It may be that you actually are given the ability to prophesy in some way that you don't have the, the human ability to comprehend. It may be that the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you don't feel anything, you know, magical. You don't feel any kind of lightning jolt, okay? That's, and that's completely fine too because the Holy Spirit doesn't have a cookie-cutter approach. But all terms aside and all church backgrounds aside, Paul asks these guys, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And so the question for each one of us is, did you, did I, did we, are we receiving the Holy Spirit? And, and if you can't answer that question conclusively, then you need to. You need to be able to answer, have you received the Holy Spirit? Because here's the deal. There's... Uh, you know, I don't usually listen to like, well, Southern pastors who use Southern expressions a lot, but every once in a while they stick really well. So I remember listening to a Southern pastor one time. This is a pastor out, in, out of Georgia. And he was telling the story about some world-class weightlifter who holds the world record for towing a 747. And the guy, you know, strapped himself into the harness. They put the thing in neutral and he heaved and dug his toes in and, and he pulled the, a, a 747. He pulled it like 150 feet or whatever. Okay, which, that's a pretty impressive. I don't think, I don't think any one of us in this room could probably do that, right? I've never tried, but I seriously don't think I could. Uh, a 747 is a really big airplane. And he pulled it 150 feet. That's a world record. Now here's the thing. There's a much much simpler way to move at 747, 150 feet. You know what it is? It's called turn it on, right? Once you get that puppy up and running, that puppy's not going 150 feet. That thing's going across the Pacific Ocean if it needs to at whatever, you know, 30, 35,000 feet. That thing doesn't need you to tow it 150 feet. Just turn it on and, and then, you know, get out of the way. And so 
sometimes we live our Christian life like we're trying to tow an airplane. And, and we're, you know, and you can grunt for the Lord, and you can grind for the Lord, and you can serve, and you can tithe, and you can fast, and you can pray. And man, it's like you're, you are making progress, but it is not easy. And sometimes you just got to let the Holy Spirit turn it on, right? So receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit come upon you. That really is the whole message of the book of Acts, all right? The whole message of the book of Acts is you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses. In where? In all the world. And then the book, as it just, as it wraps up, basically Paul, he's going through all these journeys and all these hassles and he's just carrying the gospel everywhere and he winds up getting to Rome and the final two verses say, and he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. Paul's, at this point, he's waiting for his trial to come to court. And the book just ends. The book doesn't tell us what happened to Paul, what, what happened, was his case heard, was it resolved? We have, you know, hints from church history, but the book ends. Why? Well, in a nutshell, because Theophilus was up to speed. Luke set out to write an account of here's what's happened so far. And he brought Theophilus up to present day and said, well, there you go. That's what's happened so far. But in a, in a sense, though, you know, it, it's a really, especially if you're reading it like in, you know, straight through format, it's a super abrupt ending to the book of Acts. But in a sense, it's not. Because why? What's the, what's the, what's the message? What's the overview of the book of Acts? What's the outline? Well, the outline is that the church receives power when the Holy Spirit comes upon it. And that it, the church is then witnesses of Jesus Christ, where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. When does that stop? It's still going, right? And so in a sense, yes, the, the, the physical book of Acts as written by Luke comes to an end. The book of the Acts of the apostles of Jesus Christ is happening right now in this room. It's happening in our town. It's happening around the world, right? We have missionary friends in Europe, we have missionary friends in Southeast Asia, all over the world. It's still going out. Why? Because it's still going to the ends of the earth. And the Holy Spirit is still coming with power. So, so what happened? So did the book end? No, the book is still in process. We're part of it. Right? And so we get to not just read and glean from the lives of these men. We get to read and partake. We get to be part of what they are part of. We get to be fellow laborers in the Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us and working through us. That's our opportunity, right? Praise the Lord. So let's go. You know, let the Lord turn the stinking jet on and get out of the way. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would go into our hearts. We pray that you would transform us by your spirit, by your power. God, we are... Uh, we are so weak in our own strength and yet we try so often to, to cover up and, and to make do. God, we just want to let your power work in our lives. We want to let you have your way in our hearts. We want to be transformed like Peter was, God. So fill us up with your Holy Spirit. Come upon us now, Lord. Give us your power. Let us be faithful witnesses to you. In, in all the ends of the earth. And it is in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.